Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you online, good morning to you also. We are in Paul's letter to the Romans chapter 6 this morning. And we will look to cover verses 1 through 14. Do you need to know that? We'll just get what we get. We'll stand and take verses 1 through 4. We do need to know that. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Romans chapter 6. We'll take the first four verses. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Please be seated. Restraining sin is the title. It's really, he's dealing more with the attitude of sin and the ultimate outcome with the believers. But this is very important, I think, to understanding what's going on in this sixth chapter. If you've not read what comes after chapter 6, chapters 7 and 8, then you might scratch your head a little bit more than you should. But if you know what's coming, all this makes sense. All of this is now manageable. So for those of you who are aware of what's in chapter 7 and 8, where Paul talks about the hatred for sin and the, the, the blessing of the salvation, then of course you have to apply that to the things that appear confusing in this sixth chapter. The workings of the Christian dichotomy, the flesh and the spirit. I'm saddled with these two natures, whether I like it or not. Every single person is. Every born-again believer has two natures. Let me clarify something I just said. Not everybody has two natures. Those who are not born again have a single nature. It is an Adamic nature linked to Adam and the fall, and that's it. But once you're born again, now you have that, that Christ-likeness about you, and you have these two natures, and they hate each other, and they're irreconcilable, and you're going to be stuck with them till you get to heaven. A lot of Christians don't want to hear that. They want you to tell, they want you to tell them, oh, eventually you're going to be just like Christ in this life, and it's all going to work out. No, you're not. You're going to fight to the death. So get ready for it. And a lot of good comes out of that. And that's what we're going to be talking about. That old, unregenerate nature to which we are born is the flesh. It is the old nature, not in the sense of age, but in the sense like, well, uh, maybe you move from one place and you live in another place, and you say, I, that's my old house. That's not doesn't have to be old in years. It's just where you once were. And we have a nature, that old nature, before we were born again, and that's why it's referred to as the old man. And we were born with a nature that can do nothing God's way. Romans chapter 7. Remember, I, I referenced, if you know what's coming, it's going to help understanding what's going on in chapter 6. Romans 7, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform what is good I do not find. He's not talking hypothetically. 
He's talking about his experience. Paul, Paul read in Scripture about sin, and then he experienced it in life. He read in Scripture about God's grace and mercy, and then he experienced it when he became a believer. A new nature, though. That's what happens when you become a believer. You, you, we have a new nature now, not just the Adamic one. The spirit is alive, there's a new man. And so just a quick review, because this is all what's really in this section. The natural, the flesh, the old man, it's uh, the fallen nature given to sin. The spirit regenerated in Christ, hates sin, loves the Lord. And it is sinless. That new nature. Problem is you still got the old one. Now when a Christian is carnal. That means that they are saved. But they're giving in. To that old nature. When you, you know when you get in the flesh. The, 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 the things that are wrong about you. Are, they have the upper hand. And we fight these things. We must resist these things. Because if we don't resist them. The results are catastrophic. There is no good in the old nature. But there's not enough power in the new to end that fight in this life. We were born again with a nature that can do nothing wrong. John, his first letter, chapter 3. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. And he cannot sin because he has been born of God. He's talking about, see there he's talking about the spiritual man. The spiritual man is perfect before God, washed in the blood. That's the ideal. That's who I want to be. That's who I'm going to be. And so if you lose sight of these things, you'd say, well, John, are you out of your mind? No, he's not. He's perfectly right. He understands the balance, the dichotomy of who we are. Because the Christian... The, the spiritual side of us is ashamed of our sin, hates our sin, as I've said. Look with me at verse 21, Romans chapter 6. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Well, they weren't ashamed of those things before they were Christians. They might have been socially ashamed, but not in the presence of the one who died for them, who loves them, and the Christian loves him back, the Christ, Jesus Christ. So it's not simply because the act of sin is socially unacceptable that the Christian experiences shame, but because it's against Jesus, our Lord. We have full understanding that he died for us. We didn't deserve it, and we want to please him, and we find this flesh keeps interfering with pleasing him. The one whom we love more than anyone else. No Christian is ashamed of saying that I love Jesus, or at least I strive to love Jesus more than anyone else. Is everything right with that? There's something wrong. Well, you know, I do love my kids more. Or I do love this more. Or I love that more. That, of course, offends the believer because we know that that does not come from, he- come from heaven. This hatred for sin is a good hate. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Hate what is evil, cling to what is good. 
And when we think of all the damage, the worst thing that's happened to, to anyone is sin. And when we think about what it does, we can't stand it. But the fight is worth fighting because it's just not that simple. It takes those who were once sinners and are now saved to reach those who are still sinners and are not saved. Now we come to verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, we are not to sin so that grace can flourish. He's, he's asking this rhetorical question. He picks up that question-answer format again, and he's referring to his previous statement in what we call chapter 5, where he said, where sin abounded, grace did much more. Well, if grace did abound more, shall we just continue to sin so that grace can flourish? Of course not. But some people actually try to pull little stunts like that. Clearly, he condemns any idea of reckless salvation. That sin somehow helps God be kind to us. There is a song, I know, for some of you might like it. It talks about reckless love or reckless grace. There is nothing reckless about God. That is bad theology baked into a song. And you might like the beat, but it's wrong. Nothing is reckless about the grace that we receive. Oh, it's not grace if it's clumsy and sloppy and doesn't know what it's doing and is unpredictable. But lurking in the heart of each one of us is the desire to not only sin, but to justify it. First Peter chapter 2, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as a bondservant of Christ, a willing servant of Christ. Paul could never endorse sin because he was spirit-filled. And you can't either if you're spirit-filled. You know it's wrong. And when you do, you commit it, you, you know. So it can cause a Christian heavy-duty confusion if they don't understand grace. A lot of Christians, they come to Christ and they, they set the timer. You have this long to make me perfect. And if I find that I'm still struggling with my sin, they don't say it this way, but this is what they do. If I find that you don't deal with my sin in such and such time, then I'm going to stop going to church. I'm going to stop believing you. I'm going to go back. And they become apostates. Whereas the righteous say, it's not worth going back. We have to let him deal with this. Where sin abounded, grace did much more. There is now no condemnation. And our carnal nature keeps objecting to that. How could you think that you're somehow saved still and you just did this? Well, I don't have to answer you. Christ has already answered. And I'm going to stick with that. And uh, if, if you meet a sinless Christian, call me. Because <laughs> I'm going to laugh at you. <laughs> There's only one who is sinless. And, of course, that is to Christ. Anyway, if God wanted us to sin, he would have included it in the commandments. You know, thou shall, and all the bad things in there. But he forbids these things. The New Testament it picks it right up. And yet, there's a whole world out there that really could care less. They couldn't care less about Christ. And this is the big difference. We care. We're, we're, we have a problem with sin. They have a problem with maybe right and wrong morality, but not because of Christ. Now, verse 2, when he says, so going back to verse 1, we need to read that again. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 2, certainly not. 
How shall we who die to sin live any longer to it? So it's an attitude thing again. It's an emphatic no. May it never be. Of course we can't live to sin. We're going to sin. But in our heads and our hearts, we know it's wrong. We're not justifying this. And it is disappointing to sit in counsel with a Christian who has committed some sin. And they want to try to justify it. You have an indefensible position. You're, You're making yourself look like sin doesn't matter. For you. And it's also refreshing when another Christian comes in and says, I have offended the Lord, I have done wrong, and I repent. Oh man, you can build, you can, you can resume the battle with that Christian. So, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Well, we never see sin the same way once we surrender to Christ. And by coming to Christ, we declare that sin is harmful and we side against it. We struggle with our sin. One of the most constant, unpleasant experiences of the believer. The born again are dead to sin, but sin is not dead to us. But Christ has dealt with this. And uh, we refuse the authority from hell and its opinions Uh, And whatever forces us to go against Christ is a tyrant. That is sin. Christians are not to die to sin, but have died to sin in Christ. He settled this. In practice, yes, we may commit an act. But positionally, we're perfect in Christ. He's presented us faultless. We are uncondemned by the grace of God. And this is what he meant by when he, when he said, uh, you know, uh, we're sin abounded, grace did much more. Christ overcomes your sin. That's what it means. You say, why are you repeating these things? Well, ask Paul. He repeats it. Well, why does he repeat it? Because it's not easy for the flesh to understand because a sense of pride wants to be justified. It wants to say, no, I obeyed. I get a reward for that. Well, obedience does bring reward. But to the humble, because God resists the proud. And the humble say, look, I understand my place before the throne of God. And I am committed to that. If he wants to give me something, that's, that's on him. That's the whole point of casting the crown. Casting our crowns at his feet. Lord, we're not worthy of these things. He says, I know. And you dented the crown. <laughs> now, who's going to fix that? So I'm going to place mine so that it's not damaged. Anyway, Paul believed the doctrine of human responsibility. At no point are we relieved from that. That's why it's a war. And yet he knew the doctrine of human inability. That's why he's been preaching these things. Maybe this will help you be a little bit more patient with another Christian. Because we expect more from other Christians. But we don't always get it. Sometimes we do. But sometimes we don't. And when we don't, we can get in the flesh. I can't believe that guy. You show him kindness and grace and mercy, you give him an opportunity, and that's what they throw back in your faith? Where does he live? <laughs> and a night mission coming up. Well, anyway, that's what, well, anyway, they, they suppress the humor because you can just go crazy with that on that subject. So here we are in conflict, and uh, 
verse 3 now. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ, Jesus, were baptized into his death? Now, he does not debate baptism. He's talking about salvation. But he is also, he's going to include the metaphor, he's going to use water baptism as metaphor to support everything he is saying. And the first Christians, they weren't confused about baptism. They knew if you believed in Christ, you were to express this. You were to be immersed in water. And um, they did. And he, so he, he just presents it almost a matter of fact. Do you not know that as many of us that were baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death? Still, the main thing is entering faith, not water. And so he's primarily, again, speaking of conversion, and immersion is secondary. Water baptism does symbolize the death of the individual being baptized, not the cleansing. Now, the Jews had mikvahs, these little baths all over the second temple, all over that area of the second temple. And these were little pools where the Jews would go through ritual cleansing. That's what John the Baptist, his baptism was more of a cleansing, a repentance uh, back to, to Yahweh. But the baptism of the believer is the conscience admitting the sin and receiving the Savior, and asking to belong to the Lord. It is um, quite a significant uh, gesture that we all can make. And so Paul uses water baptism as metaphor for the believer's new life in Christ. I want to illustrate that in a minute, because by this water baptism, we are identifying with Christ's death and his burial and his resurrection it is an outward event, but what's on the inside is or the, that baptism into the body of Christ has already taken place. Uh, it's baptism is saying, I am no longer under sin's judgment, but I am under grace. That's what the Christian baptism is saying. Now, this is true of the communion table, too. Every Christian should be baptized. And every Christian should partake at the Lord's table. Faith and repentance are necessary before both of them. To have faith in Christ and everything that he says about himself and everything he says about man and you, that is faith. And repentance, of course, is the recognition that we need to get on his side because we're not there without him. These two must take place before those two rites for them to be genuine. And you can fake it, but you're not faking it before God. In fact, you're adding to your sin if you are going to tamper with these two rites given to the church. Verse 4, I'm going to stay on the baptism a little bit more. Verse 4, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Well, to bury is to put out of sight. To make it difficult to reach, as a matter of fact. Death breaks the tie between man and his natural life. And this is illustrated, of course, in the water bath. I am breaking the, the tie between my flesh, my Adamic life, my natural self. And I'm coming into a different kingdom. I'm taking on a new citizenship. Salvation creates that eternal tie 
between man and his God. Now, when he wrote to the Colossians, which he, he hasn't written, wrote, written this letter yet, he writes it later, but he writes to them, he says that we've been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, raised Christ from the dead. That's, so baptism is theology and metaphor, and illustration. Through baptism into death, all baptisms are to speak of commitment and death. And immersion also. Immersion in, into the faith. Uh, symbolized by being immersed in water. M many of you know this, but some may not. That water baptism, it symbolizes the processes. First, the believer takes their stand in the water. Recognizing that they're in need of something from the hand of God. That water is a foreign element to the nature. It's something that's doesn't it's it's foreign, it's outside of itself. And it speaks of death to them as a natural person. Then they are immersed in that water. That is the symbol of the death. They're put out of sight. They are buried. And finally, from that watery grave, they come up. They emerge by the power of someone else's arm. You don't baptize yourself. The metaphor is very significant. And then we live on publicly identified through this act of obedience. So immersion announces the believer's death with Christ. The communion table, the table, proclaims Christ's death for the believer. They're joined. They are, they are in rhythm with each other. They're very meaningful to us. An unbeliever can go through the gestures of both. But there's nothing happening on the inside. There's no link to God. It's a dead link. It's a dead end. But in the believer, this is something very special. Very powerful. And if you have not been baptized and you believe that Christ Jesus is your Savior, you need to get baptized. Not because so much of others, but because of you. You go through life knowing, I've been baptized. I've lined up with the sinners. I have stood in the water. I have been submerged, dead to my flesh. And I have emerged, just as Christ came out of the empty tomb. Faith into the water, immersion under the water, and then emergence up from the water. Now here in verse 4, he says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. That word glory, doxa in the Greek, from which we get our English word doxology, which is at the end of the service when with the closing song is, is a doxology. And it is, you know, the glory of God. We, we're, you know, we are uh, being dismissed from his presence as an assembly to his glory, and also to his glory, we're heading out with whatever he has invested in us to his glory, to the honor of God. And it's not supposed to be um, a casual thing, a typical thing. It's supposed to be a glorious thing. It's supposed to be divine power involved. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is to be involved in this. It doesn't have to. 
There are many places that call themselves churches, have no interest in Jesus Christ or his word, but they assemble and they have their little closing songs. It's all meaningless. It's like um, without the Holy Spirit, they're arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic as it's going down. It's a meaningless exercise. And humanity is filled with such such behavior. Even so, he says here at the bottom of verse 4, we also should walk in newness of life. Now, those who preach greed and lawlessness, you know, God wants you rich, and it doesn't matter that you sin, he's died, antinomianism. Uh, they have to reject these verses, these type of verses to carry on that way. And if you want to reject the scripture, you will find that the Lord of the scripture will reject you. It ain't worth it. It's better to get in the fight, to deal with guilt when you're guilty and shame when you've done something shameful, than to ignore it and let that fire burn beneath the surface to your destruction. Well, uh, I'd rather be immersed in Christ than myself. And of course, my flesh protests that and the fight is on. Verse 6, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Well, it is not Christ for me unless I am determined to have Christ formed in me. Unless I sign up. And this begins with the resurrection of Christ and it is finalized with our resurrected bodies. So Wednesday we covered in from Isaiah, you know, parts of the millennial kingdom and how it's going to be. <clears throat> that there will be survivors to the great tribulation period that will enter into this thousand year period of Christ reigning on earth from Jerusalem. Well, what about us? Uh, we're, what, what's going to happen with us? Well, we're glorified in our glorified bodies. We're not susceptible to death or physical pain, and, or, or any other kind. No more sorrow. All that stuff's gone. In fact, in the New Jerusalem, that one that comes down from heaven, there are no bathrooms. I believe that if we choose to eat, the food will be so perfectly digested, there'll be no waste. Now, that's just, I want to just share that with you because I like doing that kind of stuff. But, <laughs> but, that, but I have other questions I haven't unsettled yet and I'm not bringing those out to you yet. <laughs> Who crucifies my old nature? My new one. My new one votes for its death. And, and it, it will die when I die. Uh, again, the, this body that I'm in. But sin is committed by the sinful nature of the natural man again. The side that sides with Christ never condones sin. Hates it all the time. This phrase, the old man, he says here in verse 6, knowing this, that our old man was crucified, that, uh, that he, he repeats this in Ephesians and Colossians. It always means the believer's corrupt nature, incidentally, that inherited, inborn, guarantee to sin. The old man, the old nature, the one outside of Christ versus the new man, the one in Christ, who we were before our salvation, that the body of sin might be done away with. Well, of course, my old nature cannot be saved, just like Satan can't be saved. 
It's a done deal. My physical body signals this. It starts to break down. It ages. It gets sick. And eventually dies and, and that's to, to dust it returns or ashes, whatever the case may be. But the old nature cannot be made better. Now, this is important because it's not by itself. It has to, we're going to have to compare this with the new. The old nature cannot be made better. It is an enemy to God. And if it could be made better, then who needs God? But it cannot be. And it cannot be made less sinful. It's what Paul was saying in, chap- in chapter 7 in, in the 18th verse, where he says, For I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. We read, I read that at the beginning, and there is the, the reason is theological, it's right, it's biblical. The new nature, on the other hand, as I pointed out, it cannot sin, it hates sin. It cannot make, you cannot make it less holy. It's given to us by God. And so when I read from, from 1 John chapter 3, whoever has been born of God does not sin. John had already said earlier, but if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father. He's making that clear distinction, this dichotomy. These two natures at work are under two different judgments. One is condemned and the other is grace. The one with the grace is me, the new man, who I am now in Christ. And Satan can't get his grubby little talons on that. And so it's contact with sin for the believer. To have contact with sin, it is is misery, it is painful, it is undesirable. And I know that if you are a believer, you have hated your sin. You have had your moments. I hate this about me. Not because, oh, I'm, you know, I'm better than this. Uh, not because I've done that which is dishonorable, though it is. But because I have offended the one who loves me. And yet he gets it. And he's made provision for these things. We're never friends with that nature. Never can be. Galatians 5. For the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these two are contrary to one another. Yeah, because one is perfect, the other is imperfect. So that you do not do the things that you wish. I like that Paul was very sober about sin. Again, because he had read about it in Scripture, and he experienced it in life. And he knew to tell somebody, go and sin no more, and think that they wouldn't ever sin again, was not what Jesus was teaching when he told the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Well, what is Jesus supposed to say to her? Go and sin again. I'll be here, just come back. Sin's no trivial thing. And of course, that particular sin, because there are sins unto death. You can commit certain sins and then um, pay with your life and still go to heaven, but pay with your life. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. Well, sin does not own us. It violates us. So if you, if you say, I'm not a slave of sin, then you go sin, you're going to feel like, I am a slave of sin. The Bible's wrong. The Bible's not wrong. Sin does not own you. It violates you. That's all the difference. It's so simple. It's right there. Your pride will fuss against it because that's your whole nature. But the spiritual man will rejoice. Who shall deliver me from this body of death? Because I can't do it. Don't you ever forget that. 
But yet we do. This is no way an endorsement of sin. We're coming to some of that. So Paul does not mean that the believers no longer sin, else we wouldn't need an advocate with the Father. But that Christ's death and resurrection have freed us from the condemnation of sin. That's the point. That's what breaks the teeth of the devil. He does not get to take you to hell for your sin. It has no dominion over you. Christ has dominion over you. And there's no now condemnation for you. Because you're in Christ. And where sin abounded, grace overcame that. Now you say, yeah, I agree with all that. But then when you sin, you act like it's not. The truth. It is the truth. It is not an endorsement of wrong behavior. We have another approach for that. And in verse 7, For he who has died has been freed from sin. This is true literally and spiritually. Because when you die, as a Christian, you're done with this life. There's no more sin. But in this life, to spiritually die is uh, to be free from it. Now, again, our hatred for sin attests to our being saved. That it is concrete, and the illustrations may be abstract, but the fact is concrete. To be dead is to be unresponsive, and the spiritual man does not want to respond to what is evil. Well, he says he has been freed from sin. Now, not, not sinful actions, but the original judgment of original sin. Free occurs... This word here, three times in this chapter. In the New King James, here in verse 7, the word freed is in the Greek, that identical word shows up 15 times in Romans. But only here is it translated freed. Elsewhere, it's translated justified. And we covered that. Justified means saved. Why did the translators opt only here to use the word free? Well, because it's the context of a slave. And so they're being consistent with the metaphor, with the illustration. But the meaning doesn't go away. It is still, you have been saved from sin. You have been justified from sin. That is the Greek word. And you are not a slave under dominion of sin. Even though with your hands and your mind, you still transgress from time to time. And Satan hates it. That when you sin, you see it as sin. You see it the same way Christ sees it. You despise it. You are against it. You think there, there's a happy day in hell over that? Hell is looking for the person that is casual about sin, or that writes it off to just, you know, a flaw in their character. But what he does not want you to do is to link it to the cross of Christ, which is your cross and my cross. He does not want you to link it to the baptism of Christ, the act of faith, of coming into the water, the death of the old nature, and the glorification, the resurrection of the new, the new man. 
And so we continue, verse 8 now. Now, if we died with sin, we believe that we shall also live with him. Yeah, that's what I believe. Because that's what he's giving me. That's what he's teaching me. If we died with Christ, when we come to him, that's what we do. The old man is dead. Again, we're dead to it. It's not dead to our flesh. And so, not only living with him, but living like him is the quest of the believer. Well, again, so it's Genesis one twenty six restarted in us. Let us make man in our own image according to our own likeness. Well, that was destroyed when Adam and Eve sinned. But when we are born again, that begins the process of reconstructing that original image that we were born in. So, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. I feel like I'm racing somebody. I got it first. Yes, because you're carnal. (laughs) Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Let us make man in our own image, according to our own likeness. We shall be like him. These processes are taking place. The the contract is already signed. It just has to be carried out. The contract is the new covenant. Covenant means the agreement, the testament. Verse 6, verse 9, Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. And so he's applying this to Christ, but he's saying this is where what's going to happen to us. This is what he gives to us. This is what he shares. This is the part of the Christ-likeness. This verse crushes Rome's perpetual sacrifice doctrine, Roman Catholicism. Their doctrine of perpetual sacrifice. That he's, you know, he's still on the cross. That's the crucifix. This, Hebrews 7.27, Hebrews 9.28, 1 Peter 3.18, crush that nonsense. But they routinely ignore what the Bible says to their own guilt and shame. They routinely overrule what the scripture says. And thus, I am not friends with them. Now, I'm not talking about the people, that the theology, and those who embrace that theology. The light and the darkness cannot dwell. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins. The just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There it is again. That distinction between the flesh and the spirit. Though literally applied to Christ, he's put to death in the flesh. And then glorified, of course, after the resurrection, or at the resurrection. And these things are for us too. We're talking about resisting sin. We resist sin because there's some, uh, something has happened to us. And that is the rebirth in Christ. There is a spiritual man alive in us and uh, not in those who have rejected Christ. Death no longer has dominion over him, over Christ. His earthly body was transformed into a glorified body. No longer susceptible to death or decay. Uh, immortality. As said in Acts chapter 31, where Peter quotes David, says, you know, he's not, not going to put on corruption. 
and said of us, 1 Corinthians 15, 53, this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. Verse 11, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We covered this word reckon before in the Greek. We, it comes, well, we get our English word log, like a log book, to log something. It comes from this Greek word, to make an official entry. And uh, as mentioned, God has no interest in modifying your old nature. Uh, that has to be crucified. And that sin is not dead to me uh, in is seen in this word. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. Not, it does not say, um, reckon sin dead. I'm dead to sin, but sin is not dead. You see that distinction that he's making here? Because if sin were dead, then I'd have no excuse if I sinned. Sin would be gone, but yet I'm still doing it. The sin is still here, but I'm dead to it. My spiritual man is not, is not tempted. It is not. Where do we see the spiritual man illustrated in the face of temptation? Well, Jesus in the wilderness. There's no temptation. That, it, 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 temptation was like a spark hitting the ocean. It just died on contact. We're going to be that way. It's not today. Unless you go to heaven today. <laughs> Which, um, we don't want you to yet. We're not done with you. We've got work to do. Anyway, therefore, do not let, verse 12, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. And so there's the resistance. But again, why resist if I'm stuck with it? Because without restraining sin, the consequences are catastrophic. Genesis chapter 6, verse 11, the earth also was corrupt before God. And the earth was filled with violence. Well, who wants that in their neighborhood? Some people have that in their neighborhoods. James chapter 1, sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. We know these things, but we like to see it in print from the scripture. And so again, godly sorrow produces repentance, leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Back to the deck chairs on the Titanic. Judas was, he had the sorrow of the world. He regretted, ah, wrong call. I look like an idiot. I can't live with myself. Peter went out and wept bitterly because he betrayed the love of Christ. And he was forgiven. He was restored. And he was used as though it never happened. Though the lesson from it stuck with him forever and God used that. I believe strongly that the death of Stephen never left the mind of Paul. It, it acted as fuel for Paul to work as he worked against hell. And we're very happy about how the Lord turned that water into wine. Verse 13, do not be, And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as be, being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness. Knowing that sin burns in our veins, resist it. What was he supposed to say? Don't worry about it? No, of course he's not going to say that. That's 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners 
and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Sojourners, you're just traveling through. Pilgrims on their way to a, a place of worship. And that's us. We're traveling through this life on our way to the throne of God. Verse 14. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin cannot damn me. That's what that means. It has no dominion over you. It will not send you to hell. The believer. Otherwise, no one could be saved. It's just a fact. David said this in Psalm 130. If you, Yahweh, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? It's rhetorical. If God did not provide some form of grace, then we're all just going to hell, the whole planet. But he did provide the grace. And there was even enough light given to the Old Testament saints to see that. For David to say, take not your Holy Spirit from me. I don't deserve it, but I don't want to lose this relationship because of my sin. And he was restored. So, it does not say, do not let it rule you, but it says, it does not rule you. Big difference again. Subtle little things that we miss because Paul's just writing away. So, well, yeah, this is confusing to me. What's he talking about? You've got to really work in Romans to understand where he's going. That's why the benefit of chapter 7 and 8 sort of overlaid on chapter 6 make us say, oh, okay, I get what he's saying now. Lost souls are under the dominion of sin. They are doomed. The wrath of God abides on you, Jesus said, to those that are outside who have heard the gospel and rejected it. Life outside of Christ is enslavement. Hatred for all sin proves that dominion has ended. Hatred of sin as sin. Not as, you know, again, the unbeliever can hate what we call sin, but he doesn't categorize it as a violation against the Christ. He categorizes it as some inferior behavior. Well, that's not enough. We have the light now. And this is all directly linked to a pure and holy God, whom we want to please, but it's on his terms. Because other religions talk about sin also. But it is outside the revelation of God. And that's where the test is going to come. Who do you say that I am? That's what it's all about. In the face of your sin, who do you say Jesus is? Okay, then what are you going to do with that? For you are not under law, but grace. Well, how can God bless us if we don't, if no resistance is offered to the things that caused the crucifixion? Well, he does bless us because we do resist. And um, whatever violates my faith is considered a tyrant and must be dealt with in the spirit. Um, let's just move on to the closing part of this because, again, you can just attach verses from everywhere. I want to close with a couple of verses. First John 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Psalm 19, verse 13. 
Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and I shall be innocent of great transgression. It is the cry of the heart of the believer. After David wrote that 19th Psalm, did he sin again? Of course he did. Very badly. And yet, David has a throne waiting for him in Jerusalem. He's still a child of God. He's not cast out of the kingdom. He continued to be used by God to write psalms that are now scripture. That are the word of God through him to us. He's called in the New Testament a prophet. And that he is. Sin does not have dominion over me. It does not tell me where I'm going, where my soul is going. It harasses my flesh, that old nature. But it's got nothing on the new man. The new man is perfect in Christ. It cannot be made evil. The old nature is evil and cannot be made good. If I understand the power of this salvation, I'll have a lot more authority dealing with sin than cowering under my failures. I'm not worthy. Imagine if a pastor said, you know, I'm only going to pastor if you make me worthy. Well, then you're not going to pastor. Imagine you sharing the gospel with someone and saying to them, Christ has made me worthy. And um, doesn't, you know, I really don't need him now. That would be heresy. So, uh, anyway, I didn't, well, I could just go on and on, but we've got communion to take. So, we'll just close in prayer, understanding this. Christ did not give you a salvation that Satan could get to. So live like that. Go out in the strength of understanding that I will resist sin. I hate it. And those times that it gets the upper hand on me, it will not knock me out of the box. I'll be right back in the fight. I will repent. I will take steps to correct, to make corrections. And if I fail again, I'll get up again. We have a single word for this. Perseverance. Let's pray. Our Father, a salvation that is just incredible. Nothing like it. Never toys with sin. Always encourages the believer to pursue, to come to Christ. Uh, this, history knows nothing like this. And we're very grateful. And as we come to the communion table, on the strength that all you have done, uh, may, we, may we come, of course, with hearts that are going to empty it, them, itself of the clutter of life and just focus on you. We pray that um, your word reigns in us, that we remain useful. In Jesus' name, amen.